he rang me up and he said, hey, Mark, um, I've had a little mishap. What do you think I should do? And um, he sent me pictures and the other ones all bent up and I'm like, oh, my God, just <laughs> don't fly it, leave it there. And we ended up having to um, take the flapper on, off, rebuild it and then put it all back on this beach and then he flew it back home. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 20 of On The Step with that mallard guy. Dan Bolton is my name and seaplanes are my game. On The Step is everyone's favourite float plane and flying boat podcast. Welcome to the new listeners out there and for those regulars, welcome back for another beauty of an episode. Excited to be here for another one folks. Uh, Number 20 already. Where has the time gone? Over three months of hard work to get these stories out to the world and into your ears. I have no plans of stopping, that's for sure, so don't stress and get ready for more and more seaplane stories to get you excited and passionate about the seaplane industry. To help me out sharing the stories you love hearing, make sure you share this podcast to your friends, leave me a review through Apple Podcasts and get in contact to say hello or suggest a guest my email is thatmallardguy at hotmail.com and on Instagram you can find me at thatmallardguy. As mentioned, this week is maintenance week, folks, and joining the show today is our chief engineer of the Grumman Mallards that I fly, Mr. Mark Downham. But before we go there, it's time to turn on the Seaplane Spotlight. Okay, folks, the Seaplane Spotlight shines the light on a seaplane operator anywhere in the world. To get involved for a free shout-out of your company, Get in contact in the links I mentioned previously. Today we head to Port Macquarie on the east coast of New South Wales, Australia to an operator known as Adventure Flights Port Macquarie. You can check them out on Instagram at Adventure Flights Port Macquarie and also through Facebook through the same name. The aircraft they operate are Cessna 152, Cessna 172, Technam and Warrior for their flight training sector a Decathlon and Cessna 182 for their scenic and adventure flights, and a Cessna 182 float plane for their seaplane operation. Quite a diverse company for sure. They employ six commercial pilots with a hiring minimum of 500 hours. As part of their operation, they conduct float endorsements and also King Air type ratings, uh, which I believe is through their sister or parent company, Eastern Air Services. The company has been operating its scenic and flight school for only 12 months, but the float operation has been running since 2018 on a weekend schedule, but will be moving into five days a week during the upcoming school holidays period. Now, shout out to Cam Baker, at Baker1 on Instagram, a mate of mine who currently flies the float plane there, who worked very hard to get a start in the seaplane sector for a few years. And it's great to hear the hard work is paying off and the logbook is starting to get wet with some water landings accruing. Great work, Cam. And that, folks, is this week's Seaplane Spotlight. Okay, everyone, now is the time to get into our interview. Let's connect the water line to the engine. Once the PD-6 is motoring, we'll turn the tap on, allowing water to wash clear the salt remnants in the compressor section. Once the wash is complete, the aircraft will be ready to get going on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A light. Alrighty, welcome to On the Step, Mark Downham. How are you going, mate? I'm going well, Dan. Thank you. No worries. Thanks for coming on the show, mate, and talking all about seaplane maintenance and a little bit of mallard maintenance we're going to touch on as well. You are, in fact, the Chief Engineer, current Chief Engineer of Paspali Aviation on the Mallards. Uh, how are you finding the job so far? I'm loving it, actually. Um, it's a challenge. It's um, yeah, it's rewarding at the end of the day. That's a go. Now, why don't we just take a step back and, and talk about how you got into being an engineer? Because um, is it true that you were a police officer back in the day, mate? I was. Um, I was actually an engineer before I became a police officer, but when I was uh, 18, I uh, decided to join the military. And the Navy psychologist, in fact, told me that I wasn't suited to be a cook. Um, I was more suited to be a aircraft engineer. So I then joined the Navy as a, an aircraft technician. 
uh, where I did nine and a half years. And um, then I joined uh, New South Wales Police. Okay. So, yeah. Na- Navy uh, engineer, um, I'm, you know, Navy has a, a very big water aspect. Uh, yes. So, so, what kind of aircraft were you working on there? And is, and is that similar to being a seaplane engineer in a way? Well, I was pretty lucky because I was posted to 817 Squadron, which was uh, uh, the Navy's Sea King helicopter, which in fact... Um, I never saw it, but they said was capable of landing on the water and taking off. Oh, wow. Uh, it, yeah, it had a very similar front to it that the uh, Mallard has. So, yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, right. And quite a lot of corrosion, I imagine, in those kind of aircraft working on those? Definitely. Um, we were very heavily maintained to them, so we would spend days just corrosion pre- preventing um, the aircraft and in fact before we went on deployment uh, our role was to make sure that that aircraft was prepped as such for the deployment yeah which involved about 16 of us going through that aircraft making sure everything was painted corrosion preventative compound put onto it um, and looked after that way yeah right and What's the comparison like to an aircraft, like a helicopter that spends a lot of time around saltwater environments? Because um, I'm guessing they're on aircraft carriers as well a lot of the time, yeah? Uh, we didn't have the carrier, but we had like supply ships where um, pretty much they would land on the back of the ship and we'd put them inside the hangar. But um, depending on where you were operating would dictate on what sea they were put through some points you could have waves coming over the, the top of the ship and um, it would be saturating your, your aircraft in just salt water. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, so it's very similar, but I guess not the same as landing on the water every flight. Yeah, fair enough. That would be the difference. Yeah. So um, was there any fixed-wing engineering as well involved back back in the day there? Uh, no, I didn't uh, get to do that except my father, who was a, an aircraft engineer from a very young age, introduced me to being an engineer back then. So that was the only time I, I did fixed wing right up until I, I left the military. Yeah, right. And then, so, so you, how long you did that for nine years or so, you said, and then you moved into the police force, was that right? Yep, that's correct. Um, I joined New South Wales Police and um, there all my senior uh, police colleagues were, uh, the moment that the New South Wales Police find out that you're um, an aircraft engineer, you'll be going to Bankstown <laughs> working on the helicopter. So they kept telling me that. Yeah, but, um, yeah unfortunately I left before, before that happened. Yeah, right. And, and then you also did a bit of time over in uh, Fiji as well, mate. I did. That was pretty much the start of my seaplane site. That's where it all began. Tell us a little bit about what you did over there and the kind of aircraft you worked on and, and what you know what kind of maintenance you were doing. Um, I originally went over to Fiji to do what they call a, um, a SIDS check on a Cessna 206 and that was meant to be for a six-month period. Um, at the end of that, um, six months, the account rule manager asked if I wanted to stay on and um, take over the role of chief engineer, which I decided that I would do that. And at the start, we just operated uh, Cessna 150s, 172s, a part Navia, a 206. Uh, that was that was it then. And soon after that, that, it, that led on to we got the Twin Otter 400 series. We got one of them. And then soon after that, we got a Zena 701 on flight. And then we got a Bell 407 helicopter and we got the next uh, 400 series Twin Otter. So that was very hectic. In fact, we were bigger than Fiji Airways. I was in charge of more aircraft than our Fiji Airways operated, so it was very hectic. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so what um, what was the company doing over there with those twin otters? Um, all, all water work was it? 
it was all seven star resort. Uh, we were um, just the maintenance company for that for that company before they moved on and bought their own hangar. But at the start, they purely used us as a maintenance provider, and they would fly guests out to their island. Yeah, right. It's uh, a yeah. beautiful place over there, hey Fiji. Oh, it, it's lovely. Like the outer islands are, are beautiful. It's it opens your eyes up big time. Yeah, right. So, what's it like working over in Fiji in another country uh, as a chief engineer there? Like, what, so what was the team like? Um, did you have, you know, some expats? Was there a lot of locals there? How many engineers in in total did you have there? Um, when I first got there, the uh, there was a, the chief engineer, and I was the only expat to help him out. Um, and then six months later, I was the only expat. Okay. And I had eight junior staff members, and they ranged from straight out of the university there to being with the company for a few years, but no licensed people. Um, so I was effectively the only licensed person. And then maybe about two years down the track, when we got the second Twin Otter, we got additional licensed engineers. Um, and then towards the end, we had three licensed engineers to maintain those Twin Otters. So it was very hectic. I worked a lot of weekends. Yeah, right. A lot of late nights and a lot of weekends. Yes. So, so were you doing basically all of the maintenance um, that you could do over there on those aircraft, like including engine, airframe, everything like that? Yep, we did. Well, I did everything. I was probably one of the most experienced there, I would say, in Fiji. The CAF inspectors had a lot of respect for me while I was there. and Also, I had a lot of respect for them. We had a mutual understanding. And how did, how did you find engineering in, in Fiji compared to, say, in, in Australia? Uh, initially, I found it very difficult because they operate under a, what, multiple systems. Well, they operate under FAA, EASA, uh, CAA New Zealand, right. and CASA as well. So it was very – you had to make sure you were following a lot of authorities. So it was it, – it potentially could be very difficult to keep track of things. Whereas here, we've got our CASA that will pretty much tell us everything we need to know. There, it was you sought advice from everywhere. Yeah, interesting. And what about working with um, a different nationality like the local Fijians? Did you find um, work ethic different or um, communication barriers hard to break through? How was that relationship? Uh, When I first got there, I guess it was... They wanted to work out what kind of person you were and they didn't have the confidence that I guess we have. So they would not offer any input or um, if they did something wrong and you spoke to them in a, I guess, a, a harsher way, they would just shut down and they wouldn't tell you anything. So it was a matter of... I guess I had to befriend them and work out each and every one of their their skill sets, what they were like if they made a mistake, the best way to talk to them. Or it was really, uh, and I tell you, that took like three years to break those barriers to work out each individual person. Um, it was difficult, uh, and if they didn't want to come to work, they wouldn't come to work. <laughs> yeah, they would just ring you up and make an excuse, and then you'd hear on social media through their friends what they were actually doing. Yeah, right. I, yeah. Um, I could tell you some stories on the, how they got themselves into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably just like uh, some other Australian <laughs> lazy engineers, I'm sure. Yeah, it's just the way they do things. Like one of them in particular, he. Uh, was an avionics person. He um, managed to set one of our 172s on fire with the gas gun cleaning the engine. And then not long after that, he rang me up and told me he was sick and climbed a ladder. And um, 
somehow him and his brother managed to pull the ladder up and hit the power lines and blew him and his brother off the roof of this house. Oh, and wow. um, he ended up in hospital for, uh, I think it was about four months. But Jesus. He, yeah, he'd come back to work and he's like, oh, I really want to keep doing this. And I was very reluctant to have him back in the house. Yeah, it's a bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, accident probably. Yeah, right. Um, mate, I guess, what about tools? I mean, like engineers obviously, are, you know, everyone's got their own toolbox. It's it's huge. Do you, do you pack that away and take that on a trip like overseas like that? Or Yeah, you know, I um, took my own toolbox and when I got there, I realized that they none of them really had tools. They had basic like... Um, pretty much like super cheap toolboxes. And I was like, geez, you can't maintain an aircraft using those tools. And I soon learned that I should have locked my toolbox because <laughs> they like looking after my tools. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, was, it, was it easy to access tooling over there, like to, to buy tools or was it more online purchases? How, how did that all work? Yeah, no, it was very difficult. You couldn't um, really get proper tools. Um there was no set tool shop there as such. You get cheap tools, but yeah, not sufficient to work. Yeah. You'd have to order a bit. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so I guess like you just said before about how like the company built up from you know small Cessnas, single engine pistons to then having this large twin otter float plane. Um, how does it, an engineering team like that then? build up to then working on a twin otter? Do you go, you know, back to Viking and, and do a course on how to maintain the twin otter or is it is it something that where engineers just, you know, they, they already know how to work on airframes so that's easy? Like how does that yeah. all work? Well, um, here in Australia, we get, like our licence will give us, um, I guess, our skill set that tells us that we can work on so many aircrafts because they're very similar. Over there, um, for when I wanted to get my Fijian licence to include the Twin Otter, I had to prove things like, A, we were capable of doing it, we had the facilities of doing it. Um, so Viking actually came over and did a differential um, training course, or difference course, sorry. They pretty much just sat down with us and um, told us the differences between a 300 series twin otter and a 400 series uh, and obviously with a pd6a 34 engine i'd already done the pd6 course so i already knew the engine side they just gave us a run through of uh how it all joins together and an understanding of how it worked then after that it was pretty much if we had any uh issues that we we couldn't deal with they were on phone call so we could ring them at any point in that range between Honeywell and Viking so our support was there whenever we needed it be quite interesting kind of getting a new aircraft like that to then start almost you know put into the fleet there and start maintaining I imagine there'd be some challenges thrown in with that Oh, definitely. I still can recall the first day I had to do the engine run and um, seeing a whole digital cockpit and watching the, the ITT just rolling its way up going, geez, I hope this stops. <laughs> um, yeah, it was daunting for me. Well, that's another thing as well, I guess. Um, you know, just recently when you came to Paspaley and I actually did your engine start training uh, at the company there and, you know, as pilots... We're so precise in our procedures for engine starts, especially on turbine engines. What's the training like, you know, for, for example, when you get the Twin Otter in Fiji there, like, is it just here you go, have a crack at it? Or like, you know, what kind of stuff do you go through to, to learn how to start a PD6 engine? Well, I actually, when I, the first time I ever got to start it, I had a, um, one of the senior Fiji guys that worked for the company um, not my company, for the owner company. He um, pretty much ran me through it. And um, I'm not sure if you know the, the 400 series, but if there's an issue with a startup or anything, you just get um, big red X's across the dash. 
And he said to me, like halfway through this start, like it's just gone big red X's on the, the screens and I'm like, oh my God, this is not ideal. And he's like, oh, it's just simple, just count. And I aborted it and I'm like, you can't just count them. And um, he's like saying, yeah, yeah, just count to 10 and if it lights up, it's fine. I'm like, yeah, but you don't know what the temperatures are or anything. It's, it's like, no, it won't over 10. Well, oh, mate, you don't know. That was my first experience. Yeah, right. And I was like, I'm not comfortable with this at all. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, after that, we had, um, it wasn't long after that that Viking turned up and they gave our company full training. So it was much more thorough and um, told the right way of doing things and how to look after these machines and so forth. They were great. Now, mate, you. You're over there for a few years, and you decided to come back to Australia and take up the role here as uh, chief engineer. Like I said, yep. you've been doing this for about uh, a year now, and uh, you know, I guess in defence to you, mate, there's probably some other people out there who have uh, got a bit more experience working on the Mallard to dive in deep about the Mallard stuff. But uh, since yep. you have the role of chief engineer on your belt at the moment, I thought I'd pick on you. Um, Excellent. <laughs> um, so how are you finding working on a seven-year-old aircraft that there was only 59 ever built? Very challenging, um, but I'm, I'm loving it. It's more now I get to, I guess I get to read up more on this aircraft and really research into how it works and what we can do to, to make it better or protect it for longer. Um, I actually, I really enjoy it. It's it's challenging it's it's great to work on it's something that i i am enjoying what about like you know i mentioned there 59 were were built you know 70 years ago how do we manage parts for for you know those you know particular parts on on the aircraft that i imagine would there's probably none left in the world at you know at all yeah this is where i guess it's getting harder for us but um we're lucky because I guess we've got the PD6, so we've got support for our engine side. And um, now we, I guess, opposed to companies that have got OEM support, spend a lot more money going down the Part 21 line of um, we've got to get engineering orders made up on how to fix something that doesn't exist anymore or how to get around a repair that we can't do anymore yeah so we're now subjected to converting an old aircraft to new practices yeah i guess that makes it makes it a bit difficult now you spoke about eos there as well like yep. for an aircraft like the mallard how many eos would it have on it oh there's so many there's like i don't know i'm guessing 500 eos wow. that i've seen so far there's yeah, right. like it's yeah i've never seen that before Wow, and an EO, I mean, that's not 500 different things on the aircraft, is it? Because an EO could be um, replacing another EO, couldn't it, for the same kind of thing? Correct. So how, ma- how many could you have in a line? Um, I know of one scenario we've got, there's like about 21 EOs, like um, correcting it, like starting from the beginning to today that's just flowed on to, to change a system that's... Um, yeah, a lot. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy to think of yeah. that many EOs on one thing. <laughs> and like, what, what's the process of an EO? Like, do you look at something and go, "Oh, we want to change this here"? How do you go about getting an EO? How does it all work? Yep. So here in Australia, you've got to go through a Part Twenty One uh, engineering firm. Whatever, if you come across a, an issue that there's no like data for or uh, along those lines, we approach the engineering firm and say, this is our dilemma. And generally, we'll all start with sending a photograph, telling them what the issue is, and then it becomes a backwards and forwards exchange on information on what's the best way to proceed. And at the end of the day, they will um, use their reference material to determine the safest avenue for us to take and then you go ahead and, and put the, implement the changes that they um they suggest to you of that eo 
Correct. That EO then becomes our approved data for the rest of that aircraft's life until a new EO was to supersede it. Yeah, okay. Uh, mate, I, I want to touch on as well also, um, let's say, for example, Mallard comes in for one of its phase checks. Now, it does a four-phase system, so every 50 hours we have um, a different phase, you know, one, two, three, and four. Yep. You know, let's say it's come in for phase one, and how do you go as a chief engineer to manage um, a team to get a, a phase check done? Um, for me, I, uh, I generally I'll read our work pack that we've got to, to commence, and I will generally start on putting the information onto a whiteboard uh, as to my staff, what areas I want each person to attend to, and, um, yeah, I'll pretty much I'll focus people to set areas and I'll routinely change that so we have different eyes looking at different areas of that aircraft. So um, if one of the guys does an engine this time, he won't do the engine generally next time. Okay, so it's like you're sharing the work around a little bit for everyone. Yep, and also it, um, it gives the... A different set of eyes to look over the components. So every 50 hours, you have a fresh set of eyes looking at a particular area, which um, obviously it should open up the chances that if there's a, a fault, we will find that sooner than later. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And I probably skipped a little step there as well, but for, you know, like a normal GA aircraft, it would do its normal 100 hourly um, check. Yep. Uh, so how, how does our phase system work? Yeah, the, uh, the, our, the way we do our phase system is it's, it breaks the aircraft into areas. Like our phase four is undercarriage and right-hand engine. And then our phase three will be fuselage and left-hand engine. Um, yeah, it'll, it breaks it down into smaller areas so every 50 hours we're looking at a, a targeted area opposed to a whole aircraft in that period um, and then over a period of 200 hours we've managed to to ensure that um, our entire aircraft's been looked at yeah our maintenance schedule is pretty much it's like doubling it it's we're looking at that aircraft every 50 hours that it's coming. Yeah, we're not looking at an entire, but it's a substantial part. Whereas yeah. a, a GA aircraft that goes away for um, 100 hours or 12 months, yeah. um, it will fly those 100 hours before you even see it return. Whereas where we've got it, pretty much in our face every 50 hours that we're, whether you're walking around it, you, you just notice yeah, okay. what's happening with that aircraft. It's, it's maintained more strict than what the average 100-hour GA aircraft is. Yeah, okay. No, that makes we're sense. We're covering more area. Yeah. yeah. Now, mate, what, what would you think that – well, I'll probably answer this for you, but – is, is corrosion the biggest killer or threat to a, a seaplane, do you believe? 100%. That's probably the biggest thing that um, we've got to try to keep on top of well, pretty much on a daily basis. The moment that that gets away from us, it can be very costly to the company, to the owner. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's very expensive, time-consuming, Thing that we, we you, you just don't want you yeah. need to be on top of it with a seaplane yeah absolutely so so i really wanted to kind of dive deep a little bit into what corrosion is and how it affects an aircraft and, and everything but can you just give us a bit of a summary i know that the, the whole process of corrosion is quite a complicated chemical reaction but just a quick summary of what it's what's actually happening to the metal yeah so pretty much it's if you've got like an exposed metal it's like a i guess it's like an electronic reaction to it that if you don't break that barrier it just keeps eating it and it will literally it will eat it before your eyes it's a yeah and there's so many different ways that it can 
uh, be put into into it. So you can um, you can create the corrosion by putting dissimilar metals together and not putting anything between them. It will literally go, okay, well, we're not happy and we're going to start destroying each other. Yeah, it's quite harsh, actually. They even say uh, raindrops can it, it will start it straight away because of the chemicals in the water is not pure. So it, it's already starting the, the corrosive side if you don't do anything to stop it. It's, yeah. Yeah, right. So I guess for an aircraft, if it's bare and you do nothing, the corrosion's already underway. It's going to start. So, like, you imagine, like, a brand, we've got a brand new Cessna Caravan Amphib straight out of the factory. What what kind of corrosion preventative things are, are placed on that caravan to make it, you know, corrosion-proof or as best as it could be? Um, I guess the the most basic would be um, primes, like all surfaces being primed. That would be number one. And then secondary would be um, washing and polishing. And then thirdly, it would be applying like a corrosion preventative compound, such as like um, when you're assembling hardware together, you want something in between there to to prevent anything from going in. And then, yeah, for us, we try to take additional steps. Like we'll use stuff like um, paraketone, ACF50, all those sort of um, corrosion preventative compounds to to keep the water, salt water, anything from um, getting to the, the bare metal. That's what we're trying to keep. Cad plating, all that, those sort of preventative measures to prevent the corrosion from even starting and then what's the treatment process so let's say you know on that Cessna caravan or whatever after flying it through the salt water after a few weeks or months um, you start to spot some corrosion on, on a surface on the floats for example like so what do you how would you go about treating that and, and what's the process Generally, without obviously going through their maintenance manual and all that, but generally speaking, you would um, you have to remove the corrosion. There's no point leaving it there. So depending on what the corrosion is and how deep it is to what method you use to remove it, but you have to remove it to start with. And then you can use a chemical called W01, which is like a, it like eats whatever corrosion's left there. And then we'll use a, another chemical after that, which is um, aladine. And we put that in a sort of, it like tans the metal and it puts like a, like etches on top of it. It gives it a bronzy sort of look. And then from that point, then you'll reapply your um, primer and then the, the top coat. And then from that moment on, you, you shouldn't have the corrosion reappear there and be protected. Yeah, right. And, and the process of actually removing it at the start there, that's done with like a, like, like a whizzy wheel type thing to, to remove it, is it? Yeah, it's, it's really important because at the end of the day, we don't want to remove um, too much material. So whatever way to remove it, you try to do it the least harsh way. So like it could be with um, scotch blighter. You're meant to take the, the least aggressive manner to ensure it's all gone and the minimal amount of material is being taken away how much of the material is it some sort of percentage that you could uh that you know is, is an industry standard for removing the, of that material through corrosion before it needs to be kind of replaced i sort of generally say about 10 percent of the material thickness um, however there are some areas that will have less tolerances to that the, the, generally the maintenance manual will tell us how much we can take away or um, whether it, if it's a critical area where you can't touch it but generally it's 10 percent of this uh the material could be uh, blended out yeah right and then what what happens if like let's say that little spot of corrosion that we've got now is is way way too deep and you've got to take more than that like what would be the process for fixing that piece uh, if it was too far, then we have to go into the uh, repair methods. 
that can be like cut it out, do an insertion repair uh, with a doubler over the top. Um, it could be just a, a doubler over the top. It can be various things depending on obviously where we're cutting it out or what we're or where it's located. Dictates to us what kind of repair we will we, we will do. So like a doubler, that would be like re-riveting another patch over the top, yeah. Yep, correct. Yeah, very cool. What's probably like the worst piece of corrosion that you've seen in your career? Like, is there something that you you know remember as standing out uh, that was pretty bad? Um, a skydiving Cessna two hundred seven. Um, <laughs> it came in for a sint, and I remember we it, it had a bit of like, powder coming out from one of the the skins, and I remember de-riveting it, and it just didn't stop right to the point where it was like. Oh, damn, with um, this US, this whole aircraft. It was completely through the roof and down the sides. Um, yeah, that was pretty bad yeah. to tell the owner that his uh, 207 was no more. Did it ever fly again? No, literally the cost to repair it was more than what the plane was worth. So, yeah, it, um, yeah, it, was, it sat in the back of that area. I guess that's another thing as well is that that land planes aren't kind of excluded from corrosion, are they? No. In fact, they can sometimes get it worse because people just don't associate it as that they'll get the corrosion the same as a seaplane, whereas seaplanes, we all know that they're in the the salt water, so we tend to get on top of it quicker, whereas land planes, a lot of people just don't think that it will happen to them. Not get neglected. Yeah, and I guess that comes under to another thing that I'd like to touch on, and that's um, the compressor rinses or compressor washers due to salt water. Uh, so we obviously do compressor washers every time after every time we fly. Um, yeah. That there's actually, I think, from memory, there's a rule that you're supposed to do a compressor wash, even if you operate within 50 nautical miles of the coast. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's um, Pratt and Whitney have like a, a scale and it says like, I think it's a picture of the world actually. It says if you're in this part of the world, you are going to do it. If you're not, you don't have to. But yeah, it, it says it's pretty clear on when you are to do it. Uh, I think you're right, it might be 50 nautical miles. Yeah. It's definitely salt laden. It says if you're in a severe salt laden environment or something along those lines, you'll, you'll do it. I think um, landing on salt water is pretty salt laden, would you agree? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We would be pretty crazy if we didn't want to wash that off. Yeah, exactly. Now, how do you like rate the PD6 for, for corrosion you know, handling, I guess, uh, from, for being a seaplane engine that gets pretty well submersed in some salt water? Every time it flies, I mean, being a mallard and flying boat, it's it's a lot lower to the water than say a twin otter or or even up the front on a caravan where it's kind of out of the way a bit more of the spray. I mean, there's a lot of salt spray that comes up into those uh, props and the, and the engines there. H- how do you find the PD6 for actually handling corrosion? I honestly think these um, PD6As, definitely this 34 model, they seem to be um, a great engine. They generally don't give many problems yeah they just seem to withstand what whatever's happening to them they yeah i really rate them they're great engine i enjoy working on them and then we we also do a power recovery wash um can you explain a little bit what what the difference is between them yeah we um schedule our power recovery wash but generally what you would do if you're noticing a um, performance degrade um, on your engines, you would do a um, recovery wash, and that's um, putting chemicals through the engine to clean off any, um, I guess, residue on the, the blades there that will re uh, give our performance back or cool our engine back down. Yeah, so it's just putting chemicals through the engine, let it sit for 20 minutes, and um, wash it off. And it's generally it will clean the blades and improve performance. Yeah, right. Because, like, uh, we have it, we've had it a few times there. I've, I've certainly had it once pretty bad where, you know, we've sucked a lot of water in um, on a takeoff and, you know, you end up becoming temp-limited rather than torque-limited. So 
So basically what's happening there is that the, the salt um, kind of going through the compressor, sticking to the compressor turbine blades and, and then basically just reducing the performance of the compressor section. Is that is that kind of what's happening? Yeah, but it's just making the airflow through the engine um, no longer um, efficient. So obviously if we've got disrupted airflow through those convergent, divergent veins, we're going to have an increase in temperature as such. So we just want to clean them up and um, bring everything to be as efficient as it can through that engine. Mate, um, is there anything else that, uh, you know, that stands out for you as working on a mallard um, that you find as a real challenge or, or really enjoy? I enjoy the fact that uh, they are um, an older aircraft with modern engines. Um, to me, it's like, I, I guess, sort of locked in, like you're, you're working on something that's proven its um, its worth and we've improved it even more by putting these modern engines on them um, and been flying in them and their performance is, for me, unbelievable. Like, I can't compare it um, to anything else. I think that day you took me flying actually and we were um, taxiing along the water at like um, whatever speed we were doing and I'm like, wow, this is like unbelievable. I've not experienced that except for being in a boat. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was unbelievable. I honestly, there's nothing that I can compare it to. And I guess it must be rewarding, you know, working for a company that, that kind of uses them as as I guess the you know the work ute in a way, do you know what I mean? Like they always get referred to as the, as the work ute uh, because yeah. they're transferring their own their own passengers rather than the aircraft being the sole source of revenue. Yeah, it's to me it's it's great. Like um, we're not held back in what we can do for those aircrafts. It's like if we want to improve it in any way, it's we generally do it. It's um, it, it's amazing it's unbelievable actually perfect mate um i've got a viewer or listener question actually uh that came through on instagram that i would like to put to you if you're interested um it's from uh suf yan s-u-f-y-a-n um seem to pick all the guys on instagram here (laughs) who uh, have the most interesting names um he says, hi, Daniel, why don't you have counter-rotating props on the mallard? Is it because of maintenance, fewer parts, question mark? What, is, is there such a thing as a PD-6 that has a different, you know, a counter-rotating prop to the other, you know, propeller there or? No, they all just spin the same way. It's just um, you wouldn't be able to because the blades like on your compressor and all that would have to be the opposite. Yeah. They're designed to run the airflow through it to increase the speed and all, all that sort of stuff so to go the opposite way you would have to have the blades facing the opposite way and the starter gen turn the opposite direction and, so it'd be, um, it'd be literally just a different a new engine wouldn't it that was a new reversed. engine yeah. yeah yeah and then i guess you don't have that advantage of being able to like have identical props and engines that you could just swap over i mean if if you have a an engine issue on one side you've got six others uh or five others there you know ready to go um, yep. with the other aircraft but if you started to have counter rotating um engines then you know yeah, you've, 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 you've got to match to, them with the other ones and yeah you'd have to have so many left-hand engines so many right-hand engines and yeah, yeah. just be a, a maintenance nightmare yes definitely well mate um i think that's uh that's covered most things that uh I was going to touch on today. So, what uh, I, I usually finish the uh, the chat here with a bit of a, a splash and dash questionnaire, which is like a land plane touch and go, the seaplane splash and dash. Yep. Uh, we're just going to touch on a few little questions here, uh, maintenance related, of course. Um, yep. Mate, what's probably been the your, your favourite aircraft that you've ever kind of maintained, done maintenance on? Um, I would have to say. Uh, one of my customers who's now one of my really good mates, it would be a Zenith 701 float plane. Um, it's completely should not fly. 
but um, it does. Um, yeah, that would probably be the most interesting plane that I've had to, to work on. The secondary, it'd be the Mallard and then the Twin Otter. Yeah, right. I'm just have to Google the Zenith. I have, I'll have, probably recognise it from uh, from looking at it, but I can't really picture it straight they up. They use the them a lot in um, Canada. They're experimental type aircraft. I think it's a Rick Stein's project. But, yeah, that's um, very different. It has a Rotax engine in it. Just a little uh, two-seater thing, hey? Yes, and like a little aluminium can. <laughs> Yeah, nice. I'm just having a look now. Some pretty cool photos of it beached up in some nice little beach areas. Uh, I can show you here. pictures of one of them when the wingtip um, decides to hit the water. Oh. Yeah, that happened to my friend in Fiji while I was there. All right. And he, he rang me up and he said, hey, Mark, um, I've had a little mishap. What do you think I should do? And um, he sent me pictures and the other one's all <laughs> bent up and I'm like, oh, my God. Don't fly it. Just don't fly it. Leave it there. And we ended up having to um, take the flapper on off and um, rebuild it and then put it all back on on this um, beach. And then he flew it back home. Yeah, right. It kind of comes to our next question there. Like, obviously, in the float plane world, um, you know, sometimes you have to do a bit of maintenance off-site when you really have to do that in any world. But... Um, being the float plane world you might have to end up doing some maintenance not at an airport what, what's been the most crazy location that you've had to do some maintenance work on an aircraft um i would say uh, on an island underwater putting a spacer on a wheel uh, that would be the <laughs> <laughs> the strangest thing i've ever done i i, I hope that's an amphib <laughs> Yes, it was, yeah. <laughs> a bit awkward if it was a land plane. Yeah. I don't think they'd care about a spacer on a land plane underwater, would they? No, no that would be a very bad, yeah, very bad day. Yeah, right. I've actually, you know, I'm not an engineer, obviously, but I've actually helped out putting a patch on a beaver float plane at the Great Barrier Reef after it had made contact with some reef. Um yeah. You know, and and had the engineers out there, and they, uh, you know, they were they were in a dive gear and they were underwater doing some riveting and drilling and everything. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was pretty intense actually. You know, having all the yeah. compressor gear out on the boat and everything, and all being flown out, and yeah, it was that was a bit wow. uh, that was pretty crazy engineering as well. You know, when the when the when, when the engineers got the dive suit on doing some work <laughs> underwater. Um, yeah, it sort of changes your day when you expect to be not getting wet and trying to fix something underwater. Yeah, exactly. What would be better to work on? Something that's got, uh, you probably don't do avionics, I guess, but glass cockpit or, or steam for, for seaplane stuff, is, is one better than the other? Steam by far is easier. However, it is nice to have the glass cockpit. Like I must admit like as long as you've got support for that glass cockpit it's it's not that bad but steam gauges are so much easier to deal with um what would be the best and the worst parts about working on the mallard um the best parts i guess is um yeah i'll start with the worst the worst parts lack of <laughs> oem support um, so, so we what, don't just, have, just for the viewers out there, what, what's OEM stand for? Uh, like the manufacturers, the manufacturer. Like we can't go back to them and say, hey, can you give us some um, information on, on this? Um, it's just not there anymore. Um, yeah, or how to, how to do something because our maintenance manuals can be um, very vague, hard to, I guess, interpret what they were they were trying to tell us to do because it's different now um yeah all those sort of questions that's where i guess it's it's difficult the good side would be i guess being able to spend time on this aircraft and constantly improve like on on what we do as as engineers like um if any of our guys come up with ideas on how to um, improve our corrosion process. I'm actively listening to that. Their input is invaluable. It's 
yeah, it's it's just a, a great company and aircraft to protect these mallards. It's that's what I enjoy the most. And I guess the last question, mate. Um, if you had, I usually kind of finish with advice for aspiring seaplane pilots. What about aspiring seaplane engineers? What if if there's an engineer out there that wants to come and work on a float plane? What are some th- what are some advice that you would give them? Um, I guess go to your your hangers and introduce yourself to the the chief engineer and tell them that you're you're dedicated and you're keen and all those sort of questions and um, generally speaking if you you hang around long enough when um, you're looking for someone they're the first people that you're going to go and um, ring. It's always just like um, in the pilot side of things you know making sure that you show your face is a a big one. Yeah 100%. Yeah, awesome, mate. I really appreciate you taking some time out. I know that uh, you spend a lot of time um, working on these aeroplanes uh, sometimes, especially late in the evening. The last thing you want to do is talk about working <laughs> on them. But uh, really appreciate you uh, spending some time and sharing some insight into what it's like to be a, uh, a seaplane engineer and also Grumman Mallard engineer. So, uh, Mark Denham, thanks very much, mate, for coming on The Step. No worries. Thank you, Dan. And that's the show for today, folks. Thanks to Mark for a great insight into his career as a seaplane engineer. Now is the time to leave me a review if you love the show and to get in contact to say hi. Folks, we are back talking to pilots next episode and what a beauty I have for you all. Mentioned only last week in the seaplane spotlight was above and beyond Tasmania, a beaver operation in the south of Australia. I've got Virgin Australia airline pilot and founder of Above and Beyond, Henry Ellis, on to talk about what it's like to start a seaplane operation from scratch. You know, you're still flying a, a you know, 60, 80 million dollar jet around as well. And um, that, that's pretty cool to have that variety for this next month to go and fly Beaver, you know, up to Lake Sinclair or over to Mariah Island or somewhere like that. You know, you, the difference is amazing and the, the contrast of, of flying is, is fantastic. Great episode coming your way very shortly, folks. Until next time, everyone, thanks for coming on The Step.